Hi everyone, the Ask Mike Show. We are back again. We have a special guest today. We have Leyland Scalar joining me. Leyland, thanks for coming on the show. It's absolutely my pleasure. And you're, to be and you're best known for being a bassist, I think that's how you pronounce it, for the sure. family which used to be the section, if, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm excited to, to dive into music stuff and bits and pieces about you know, what, what, what you've learned over the years. Because if I'm not wrong, you started your journey in the 60s and 70s. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, late, late 60s, uh, around 69 is when things started rolling. And then 1970 was really the year where everything took off for me. So was having the guitar something that you grew up with? Was it your first instrument? And you know, mine was guitar. Uh, never got very good. I was one of those people that would get bored before they got good when it came <laughs> to musical instruments. So talk us through how you got started. Well, I started as a pianist um, when I was four years old. Uh, the, the, when we, my house where I grew up, we had a baby grand piano in it. My mother played a little bit of piano, and it was she inherited it from her mother. And uh, there used to be a TV show when I was a little kid. Uh, there was a pianist named Liberace, and Liberace was kind of like. Uh, the incarnation of Elton before Elton got dramatic. Um, he, he would wear costumes and all kinds of stuff, but he was a great pianist and I would watch his show and fell in love with um, piano. And so by the time I was uh, turning five, I started studying classical piano. And I played piano all the way through till I was 12 years old. And at that point entered junior high school. And there was, uh, assuming I'd be the piano player, and there was a, 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 a plethora of young pianists, but they needed a string bass player. So the music teacher uh, said, would I volunteer? And I said, what's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> and he pulled uh, this old K blonde upright out of the back room, put it in my hands, showed me how to hold it. I plucked one note, felt that vibration run through that bass, and I said, I'll do it. And he gave me some rudimentary lessons and I fell in love with bass and piano kind of fell by the wayside at that point. And I really focused on bass and that's been my instrument ever since. Now I've never played guitar. Um, so I really, you know, I came to it from bass where a lot of bass players I know came to bass as guitarists that there was too many guitar players around. So they needed a bass player. So they would pick up bass. But for me, it's always been bass. When did you first perform in front of a crowd as well? Because we all, we all like having hobbies and things, but when did you do the first thing that was kind of like, I could probably make some money from this? Um, well, once I started playing bass, uh, by the time I was in just entering high school, uh, I was, my father took me to a music store and I ch transitioned to electric bass and uh, had a, got a, a melody bass and a St. George amp, a couple of Japanese uh, cheapo instruments and was always in bands and we would end up getting gigs playing fraternity parties and um, little club gigs and stuff. We'd make like 10, $15, but it, it suddenly when you had that money in your hand, you thought this might be possible. I don't know. You know, you, you really don't know. But for me, where it really started to come together was 
uh, in the late 60s, I was in a band called Wolfgang in Los Angeles, and Bill Graham was our manager. And the, the first gig we ever played was at Winterland, the iconic Winterland in San Francisco, opening for Led Zeppelin. And that was our, our very, very first time we ever walked out on stage together. And man, the rush of that was unbelievable. But it was in that band uh, through the uh, friend of the drummers that I ended up, um, James Taylor came to one of our rehearsals. And he had just come back from England where he did his first Apple album. And we hit it off and he got offered a gig at the Troubadour in Los Angeles. And, uh, and they tracked me down through the band and asked me to play that gig with them. And that one gig has turned into the, the next 50 years of my life. Uh, wow. So it just, it, when it hit, it hit so fast because he was the perfect artist in a perfect storm. Uh, for a complete different direction in pop music at that point. He wasn't a folky, you know, you know, like Dylan and Joan Baez and all the people of that. It was a different thing because he had a band and uh, it, was, it was a unique period of time. And the next thing you know, he was on the cover of Time magazine. And, uh, and we ended up just starting this whole movement of this West Coast um, kind of a new, newish pop um, Folk pop, it was hard to label it because it was really kind of fresh. And that's when like Jackson Brown came along and Linda Ronstadt and all these people. And we ended up being the guys that did all these people's records. Um, so our career happened just overnight. When I really started working my butt off in the studio, I still had only done a couple of projects in the studio before that and was learning every day how to do it. You know, how do you, you know, with direct boxes and all this stuff and mics and... You know, you just used to going into a club, setting up and hoping you got paid. So all of a sudden we were in the real world. And uh, it's been a remarkable run. I can, I, I pinch myself every day that this is still going on. Because musicians are always paranoid. You always think that your last gig is the last gig you're ever going to have. And nobody's ever going to call you again. And I don't think at any level in this business you get over that kind of anxiety. Um, there's an insecurity to the business, but that's also part of the exhilaration to it yes kind of like matching the whole the anxiousness with the excitement because if you if or when you get the next one then you're like yes it's not going to be the last one i've got another yeah. one yeah no i mean so that's where the excitement level really is because you know all you go oh it's still happening cool and then suddenly that ends and you go oh crap it's over and then the phone rings again it's a pretty neurotic existence i'll say that but uh but i'm good with neuroses <laughs> I was like, you sit there going, whew, haven't got to get a job. Uh, I've got another gig. Great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's been the hard part of this pandemic is when, when, you, when you really, your DNA is geared around working all the time. I never vacation or anything. I love working. Work is my vacation. And to suddenly have had a year's worth of work disappear instantly um, it's thrown a real kind of a monkey wrench into my DNA because for 50 years I've been used to a, not not a, a specific schedule but but a general schedule of touring and recording and uh, and doing gigs you know and, and all of a sudden kind of sitting there all dressed up with no place to go. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. The uh, the pandemic definitely changed things. That's for sure. So I have to ask: Did you ever get yeah. to chat to Led Zeppelin or, or not? 
Well, o- over the years, I've ended up not at that gig, but over the years, I've gotten I got to know the guys and and did gigs around them. Ended up doing um, a, a video uh, for uh, this comedian Howie Mandel. We did we did it, and Robert Plant was in it too. So we were hanging out at that, and uh, never never met Bonham. I would love to have met Bonham. I know Jason, but I never got got to know John. But uh, I was a huge Zeppelin fan. You know, amazing. John Paul Jones is still one of the most kind of not underrated but you know when people talk about the great bass players in the business his name doesn't come up that often and he certainly should Hmm. so you wrote songs or performed songs for other bands am i right in saying that so you were kind of like the you sort of created a lot of the instrumental type things for other people yeah well as a studio musician um, that, that is really your job. So, um, I've never, I've never been a writer. I love arranging, but I've never been a writer and I've been around some of the greatest writers in the business. And it kind of leaves you with a bit of an inferiority complex when you're with these geniuses. <laughs> so I, I've never really kind of went down that road, but my job generally in the studios, I show up and there's an artist there and they will play you a demo or they'll play you a guitar or piano and show you a song and you sketch out a little chart for yourself if they haven't got anything for you and you start recording and uh and and it's your what you bring to the table is what what comes out at that point and uh i've worked on probably around 25,000 songs in the past 50 years and and every one of them has needed me to come up with a bass part, so it's a it's a challenge. It's a there, there's an excitement and, and and a terror every day about this because you never know what you're getting into. But uh, it's it, but it, L.A. has a fantastic music community. I live in Los Angeles, and uh, the depth of players here uh, and creativity is, is really profound. So. Uh, every time you walk in the studio, you know something cool is going to happen. And it may not be the artist or the songs, but you're playing with your friends. When I, I walk in and I see Vinnie Cayuta sitting there on drums or, you know, Russ Kunkel or I see Steve Lukather or, you know, you know, any of these guys, you know, as soon as I walk in, I just go, I'm happy. I'm, I'm with my brothers and sisters. You mentioned the, the almost like an inferiority complex compared to... Uh, the the artist that would come into the studio, you had this kind of like they're the sort of talent, if you will. You're just the guy playing the instrument. Is that something that stays with you, or is that something that you kind of just appreciate the other person, the singer or whatever it is? You kind of appreciate their craft as well as your own. Well, yeah, I don't feel like there's, a, when I said kind of an inferiority, I, I, I was basically meaning like, uh, I just never felt comfortable writing songs because I was around some of the greatest songwriters, uh, you know, like James Taylor and Neil Sadaka. And, and you know, I mean, you, I've worked on with so many great, wonderful, Carol King, all these great songwriters. I never felt I was in that league as a writer. So I always kept my distance, but when it came down to playing, I always felt we were on a, on a completely uh, level playing field. Um, that 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 didn't bother me. To play bass on their songs was there was nothing um, that I was nervous about with that. It's just if I was asked to write a song for their album, I think I would I would probably choke on that because it's just not what I 
it's not my comfort zone, I'll say. Right. So it's almost like you you sort of thought to yourself, I'm the bass player, they're the, the singer or the writer yeah. it is. I know where I, I stand with it and I know where where they stand with theirs as well. Was it a mutual yeah. thing? Like did they feel the same way about you as well? I think you know, I think they do, and a lot of times actually it's usually uh a, a situation where a lot of times the artists are actually the most insecure because they're coming in with a bunch of, you know, studio musicians that do this every single day that really know what they're doing. And so I think a lot of times the artists are really the most insecure people in the room. If they live in their own little bubble where you, you're used to this intensity and, and all the people you work with. And many times they'll come in with a song and it's, it's the, it's the band in the studio that says, look, man, you need a, an introduction. We'll come up with one for you. Or the bridge kind of sucks. Let's, let's work on the bridge. And the band actually recreates the song form into something of a more uh, kind of palatable and saleable. It might be a basically a really good song, but it really isn't you know, put together properly. And that's where the studio musicians come in and really resolve that uh, for them. So we're all, we all have our place. This is really, you know, it's, it's like putting together a puzzle. And uh, each piece fits in, and when it's done, you've got a beautiful picture. If one piece of that puzzle's missing, it's incomplete. Have you ever had moments when you've had to go in to, oh, I don't want to say improve the song, but to, I guess, refine the song? Like you go in and you do your bit, and it actually sounds a little bit better than what it was beforehand? Absolutely. No, a- absolutely. That, that happens a great deal of the time where you go in and the thing is really pretty raw and it doesn't have a hook in it or anything, but there's something maybe lyrically that's really cool about it. And you come up with a bass part or a guitar player, whatever, keyboard player, whoever. Uh, they come in and, and lay down a part that all of a sudden the whole thing just becomes cohesive and comes together. And that's, that's really the excitement to me of being a studio musician. It's being able to contribute on that level and take something that was maybe a six and, and make it into a nine or an 11, you know, just improve it that much. And yeah. sometimes it's real simple little things that can do that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, sounds amazing how just something so small as the keyboard played a bit differently or the guitarist playing a bit differently, or the ba- the bass, yeah. your sort of part can just change the song in in that in that way. Yeah, it, it can be unbelievably dramatic, really quick, and 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 sometimes the artist will sit there. You know, some sometimes it's it's it, it could just be changing the tempo of the song, not even parts as much as just going, saying to the person, man, this song would feel a whole lot better if we just slow it down a little bit. You're rushing, you got a lot of words, you're rushing them, you know, and just bring it back. All of a sudden the song, the song takes on an entire different uh, atmosphere by just changing the tempo on it. So it can be, it can be a variety of things or sometimes the key, like the person will come in with playing it in one key and you go, man, if we like took this down a little bit, it'd sound a little, a little moodier, a little cooler because your lyrics are, kind of dark it's not an up lyric but you're doing it you know in a key in a tempo where it feels like you know it's a little too happy and Uh, and if they're a good if they're a good artist and they appreciate the band there they'll at least listen 
And, you know, they may say, no, I'm really happy with what I've got. And then you go, okay, cool. That's, it's your song, it's, you know, your project, but you, you, you get involved beyond your instrument. And that's one of the real things that, that I appreciate with the really good players is when you're in there, you're playing your instrument, but you're listening to everything. You're going in for the playbacks. And, and if you feel there's suggestions to be made, you make them because this is, um, this is really that artist. It might be their only shot in the studio, and you want to make it the best experience it possibly can be. That's a very interesting point where, especially now, sort of fast forward into to present day, one song can be enough to change your life. You know? Absolutely. I don't know if that's the same for, again, over the years of, of you being involved as well, but particularly over the past sort of maybe 10 years, maybe even a bit longer than that, one song could literally change your life. Well, yeah, the, 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 I used to go to Nashville and work a great deal. I did tons and tons of records in Nashville. And they were talking about, I, I don't know the songwriter's name, but I think he wrote High Friends in Low Places for Garth Brooks. And they said, like, the guy was, like, living in his car, wrote the song, Garth cut it, and the next thing they saw him driving a Rolls. <laughs> I mean, it can be dramatic. As a player, you don't experience that. It's usually the writers that life can change overnight or for the artists. But as, as musicians, um, you can work on a failure or you can work on the biggest hit of the year and you still get paid the same. Right. So, That's interesting. You know, but you, you don't have a vested interest on that level of it becoming successful. You wish it would be successful because you take pride in your work. Um, yes. But it's not like all of a sudden you're going to get a check for, you know, you know, $5 million for a song <laughs> you work on. But the, but the songwriter or the artist could. That makes sense, actually. And it also speaks to your love just for the craft and just for the music industry. You know, you've worked with loads and loads of people and you still sit there and go, I can't believe I'm in the room with this person. And I love just playing the, the bass guitar, and I just love the, the act of playing the instrument. Did you yeah. have any moments where any moments where you wanted to do more with it? Any moments where you wanted to take it a bit further, or were you just so happy with where you were? Well, I think I was always, I've been really fortunate. I've been so busy for so many years that I never really thought about going to another level. Um, or, 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 or intentionally going to another level. When I'm in the studio working, certainly uh, there's guys that get hired as arrangers for projects, you know, different projects. And most of the players I know do arranging on the spot. So we, we're like uncredited uh, for our contributions. But I, you know, I was always, I've never, I've, in, in the past 50 years, I've never had one year where I wasn't on tour um, and it had no years where I wasn't in the studio. So I've always been content with that. I've always had a, a, a certain level of employment that, um, that kept me, you know, happy. And it really wasn't until the pandemic hit that all of a sudden this weird reality came in where all of that stuff disappeared. It's something, I don't know, know if I necessarily took it for granted, but it was the norm yeah. for me. Yeah, it is a bit different when, I don't know, we have this conversation around like 
the, the normals changing and you took it for granted, maybe you got a bit complacent, but at the end of the day, normal is still normal. You know, if you wake yeah. up on the left side of the bed, you don't get complacent about that. That That's just your, that's how you get out of bed. And then all of a sudden you're going up on the right side of the bed. That can feel weird just doing that, right? So I think having that balance between yeah. this is normal I think it's something that you wouldn't get complacent with, in my own opinion anyway, because you've still got to work to get the gigs. They don't just fly on your lap all the time. You still have to actually do You have to work at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've never been complacent about it, or I've never taken anything for granted. There's a certain expectation over the years of what you're going to be doing, and... um, and, but every day is, is different. And that's the, the thing I find so kind of intoxicating about music. I, I've known guys that they go to, they go to an office or they, like, they go to a, a car manufacturing plant, even though most of it's robotic now. But I knew guys that worked at General Motors in the pit. And they were pretty much like installing a, a, a leaf spring every day. You know, that's all day long they would do that. Nothing ever changed for them. Every day as, as a musician, there, there's a similarity from the standpoint, you're going to go to a studio, but it could be a different studio every day. There's a lot of studios or home studios. Um, and a lot of the time when I show up, there's nobody else there but an engineer. And I'm just overdubbing bass parts to tracks. Um, other times I go in and it could be a full orchestra. Not now there's, they're trying to do some orchestral dates, but they really broke the orchestra down and separated everybody for safety. But um, it's, it's one of those situations that not knowing what you're arriving to do keeps you on your toes. You can't fall into a routine because I could show up and, and it could be, you know, like a Latin fusion project. It could be a Japanese animated film uh, it could be anything. So you, you just don't know. So you really have to be on your game all the time. And, uh, and it's one of those things you really can't afford not to, to do it right because uh, it's expensive to be in a studio uh, and people have booked time and it's not like you can sit there. Like if you had some kind of a job where you were going, um, you know, it doesn't feel good today. Let's, uh, let's just go eat some pizza, watch a movie, and come back tomorrow. Uh, when you arrive at the studio, you have to leave with a finished product. It, you don't have the luxury of being able to say, let's do, let's do another day. Um, so there's a, there's a stress level that, that's, that's really high, but you don't allow that to dominate your thoughts. You, know, you just get down to work. You just do it. And hopefully the stuff comes together quickly where you can nail songs within one or two takes, which is where the, the most uh, dramatic juices flow when you're first hearing the thing and playing it. You haven't had time to think about it yet. How do you manage those stress levels? Because if it's different every day and everything's up and down and obviously you've got expectations from yourself, the studios, the people that you're working with. Do you have any yeah. particular like, strategies or practices that you do that help with that? No, I, when I'm driving to work, I just sort of sit there and say to myself, God, don't suck. <laughs> Please don't suck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, I want to go and, and do the best job I possibly can. 
And um, so, I, you know, I, I, I don't look at it with any anxiety so much as I look at it with enthusiasm and kind of like, what's the adventure for today? And I'm confident enough in my, in, in my work that I'm sure it'll be okay. It's just kind of that not knowing what you're going to have to pull out of the hat that day that keeps it really exciting. And there's times I walk in and I don't know any of the other players in the room or I'm, I'm with a band where their bass player quit or something and they were in the studio. So they hire me to, to be in the band for that project. And I'm meeting people I'd never worked with before. And I find that really exciting at times to find new people. And, and I've found some drummers like that, that I immediately turned other people onto. I said, he's in a band, but man, use them. It's really yeah. good. And so th that's really kind of how the music community works. It really is connections and, and meeting people. So um, I keep my ears open all the time for, for new players. And, uh, and it's really fun for me. I still work with like some artists I work with are, you know, 18, 19 years old. And, but when we get in the studio, it's a level playing field. You know, we, we go at it just like they could be 70, 50, you know, it doesn't the age doesn't matter if they got the goods. It's almost like a skill that as long as you can perform the skill, right? Obviously, we're getting pretty um, robotic. Yeah. But if you can perform the skill, then you're good. That there's, no, there's nothing else that comes into it. Yeah, I mean, it, there has to be a certain level of, of expertise and competence to do the job. Now, some projects will, will be of a nature where it suddenly you're finding yourself digging into areas that you, most projects haven't demanded of you because that music is making you think in a different way. And I really love when those come along because they suddenly, I'm going away from kind of my normal routine on, on most, like mostly pop stuff that we get, you know, pop and country and stuff. And, uh, but all of a sudden you'll, somebody will come with a song and you're gonna go, oh Jesus, this is really cool. Um, how about if we try and then I pull out maybe a couple of different pedal things and, and try some experimentation on it. And uh, I, I enjoy that. You know, I, I, I don't I don't come in with a set routine in mind. I mean, I have a, I have a long history I can draw from. So certain things can easily fall into place. And I think that's why a lot of the players uh, like myself and, and the other guys who have been doing this a long time get hired is because we can get to the point really quickly where if you hire some young guys like right out of MI in Los Angeles or one of the music schools, um, they haven't got the backlog of experience. So they might be kind of floundering around trying to find parts where we come in and we can kind of laser right into what's needed and then refine that to, you know, make it unique and special. Oh, got you. So it's almost like the years that you've had have allowed you to refine everything so that there's always going to be that step rather than have like 20 different things it could be. There's probably yeah. five things it could be and that speeds up the process. Yeah, we can hone it down pretty quickly as to you know, what's going to be the best thing in our minds for the song. But there's times when you come in and do that and the artist will turn around and look and go, no, that sounds, I don't like that. And then you start working at trying to figure out what the artist is looking for and try to, because at the end of the day, the artist has to be happy. Yeah. More sure. than anybody. It's their project. So you want them to be happy. 
So you have a, a documentary coming out, don't you? You've got, you've got something you want to tell us about that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. There, for anybody who hasn't checked it out, Denny Tedesco has, made this movie called The Wrecking Crew about the great studio musicians of the late 50s to the 60s. So he came to us and said that they wanted to make a movie about our group, which started as The Section. Uh, back in, in in the early, very early 1970s. And we ended up as James Taylor's band and Jackson Brown's band. So we would do their albums, but then we would also go on the road with them. And um, they it, it's different because the, the section was kind of a rock fusion instrumental group where the immediate family is all... Uh, it's two different members. It's it, the the section was Russ Kunkel, Danny Korchmar, myself, and Craig Durge on keyboards. Uh, the immediate family is Russ Kunkel, myself, Danny Korchmar, but also Wadi Wachtel on guitar and another friend of ours, Steve Postel. And it's vocals. It's more pop driven. But when we were first starting, because the the thing is, the guys in the group had written a lot of songs like Waddy worked a lot with Warren Zevon. So he co-wrote Werewolves of London and Johnny Strikes Up the Band and cool. a whole bunch of Zevon stuff. Uh, uh, Cooch wrote Machine Gun Kelly for James Taylor. He wrote, uh, he did a bunch of Henley stuff. He wrote All She Wants to Do Is Dance and Dirty Laundry and all these songs. So we were out, when we started gigging, we told everybody we were a, we were a cover band that only plays originals. And uh, <laughs> it was... <laughs> a great way of approaching it, but we've finished. Uh, so we're, so Denny's doing this documentary, which was really going at full speed. And, and then the pandemic hit. So it, it's all, it's still being done. They're still doing interviews and, and gathering footage. And we've got a, a bunch of stuff. Hopefully it'll be out somewhere in the first third to the first half of next year. And that's when we're going to uh, be releasing. Uh, we have a, a new album. Uh, on Quarto Valley Records here in in Los Angeles, and uh, we're holding on to that until the documentary comes out. I'm going to try to just do a big assault at that point. So we've got our second video and single just came out. We have an EP coming out uh, with the immediate family in uh, on in October, I believe. The EP comes out. Um, but the thing that Denny said was interesting was that the Wrecking Crew was around for about 12 years at the, at the height of their work. They never left the studio. They just did everybody's records. And they were so entrenched in the studio that they would do it. And then, uh, then other people would go on tour and so where he said, we've been together 50 years. We've written, produced, toured with so many of the artists that we've worked with. So it's a very different thing. It's not like Wrecking Crew 2 or anything like that. This is a an entity unto itself. So it's really exciting. I mean, we were so flattered when they came to us. And they've interviewed um, Barbara Streisand. Hi, Babs. <laughs> yeah, it's Barbara Streisand. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's one of these things that we... You, when you're living in it, you don't see it happening, you know, and, and, and for me to look back and think it's been a half a century, it feels like yesterday. When you're living in the moment, you don't see what the future is going to be. And, 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 and you don't think about the past. I, I see so many guys interviewed and stuff, 
And really all they talk about is what they did 30 years ago. The movie's going to be great. We're thrilled about it. And we're thrilled about the new album. And, and there's all kinds of good things going on. And during the pandemic, you really have to, it really kind of makes you think about how do I maintain viability and enthusiasm about a business that's suffering so badly. Um, certainly clubs, small clubs, I mean, big venues, you know, arenas and stuff like that, they'll be bringing in sports before they'll bring back music to them. I think music's going to be one of the last things, even though it's one of the most critical parts of society, is for people to be able to go listen to music and, and get away from things. So it's, I'm really not sure where the future is going with this, but um, but I want to, during this, no matter how long this takes, is do things that feel engaged, that still are bringing pleasure to people. And, uh, and so we're, I've been doing lots of, I work with a girl named Judith Owen, and she's married to Harry Shearer from Spinal Tap and The Simpsons. And um, we've been doing like lots of acapella videos and putting those out and then doing like little living room show things with her and putting those out. So trying to create as much content and stuff for people to get away and and listen to and enjoy as possible under the most adverse of circumstances. But my my biggest fear is for small clubs at this point, because they still have to pay their rent and everything and they can't do anything. So at a certain point, they're just going to run out of money and have to, you know, close up. That's that's very, it's not... um... It's not looking good because uh, there's a lot of places that will just ride this out because they can. And then there are places that don't have that luxury. You know, it's not looking, yeah. it's not looking good. Yeah, no. And it's, it's global. I mean, that's the thing. There's clubs that we were supposed to be in Japan um, with the immediate family and that got canceled. But um, some of the places we were going to be going over there and playing, I think, are, I think, like the Billboard Live in Nagoya might be closing. And, right. you know, it's, just, it's heartbreaking. You know, this, is, this, this, this whole thing is like peeling a huge onion. And you just keep going through layers and layers. And you think, oh, I've reached the middle. And then there's more layers and more layers. Um, so, so many things are being affected it's so profoundly. And you don't know if the situation will ever arise where they can come back. And that's really the heartbreak. These people have dedicated their lives to these places and suddenly it's all gone. So yeah, it's a very, my fingers are crossed. My fingers are crossed. Yeah. It's, it's a very good point to be fair. Um, where can people learn more about you? So are you on social media? Do you have a website? How can people check out the, the, the documentary as well? And then we will, we'll finish. Well, I am, uh, the immediate family has a, a web page, the immediate family. Um, I have, uh, I'm in the process of building a web page right now, which I'll, I will have up in about um, 10 days, but it's primarily for the book I'm doing, um, but it's going to become everything that I'm doing. But I have a YouTube channel I would love to invite people to. I'm having the best time. I'm on it. I'm posting a video every single day on it and telling stories about adventures in the studio and on the road. So it's just uh, Leland Sklar channel, pull it up. And I'm on Facebook and, and Instagram. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm findable, you know, just yeah, Google yeah. me. Up, there'll be some crap there. You know, that, that, <laughs> you know, I, I, I leave crumbs behind me when I'm walking so I can be found or find my way home. 
Leyland, thanks for being on. I really appreciate you taking the time. For those that are listening, those that are tuning in, make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. And if you feel compelled to, leave a review wherever you are tuning in. Leyland, thanks for being on, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it so much. And it was a pleasure talking to you.